How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll make sure that we're ready to study the word this evening, ready to uh, worship the Lord, continuing our walk by means of the Holy Spirit. So that means that we need to confess sin if necessary in silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, it's truly a wonderful time that we have to come together to be refreshed by your word, to think about what you have had recorded for us that has stayed the test of time, that you have preserved it through the centuries and provided it for us, and that we can take the time to study it, to think about the words, the language, the structure, what we are to learn from each one of these psalms as we study them. And Father, we're thankful that uh, in your grace that you have provided us with a salvation that is not something we can earn or deserve, not dependent upon anything that we do or anything that we don't do, but is totally dependent upon the completed work of Christ on the cross, and that all we do is trust in him and we have everlasting life. Now, Father, as we study tonight in Psalm 30 and we learn about how you preserve David in a time of uh, where his life was threatened, uh, we understand that you preserve us, you protect us, you provide for us, you deliver us in ways perhaps that we don't even comprehend. And Father, we're thankful for that, and we're thankful that we know that we are to walk with you, and that because you are omniscient, omnipotent, and omnipresent, that we are completely safe and protected and secure under your Uh, under your direction, under your sovereignty. So, Father, now as we study tonight, help us to think through what we are learning, think it through in terms of application, that we may have objectivity in terms of our own lives and our own values, that we may be transformed by the renewing of our minds. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, open your Bibles with me to Psalm 30. And tonight we're going to look at the next section of verses. We just got through uh, the first verse last time. And tonight we'll look at verses 2 through 4. And in verse 4 we are uh, exhorted or challenged or invited, however you want to use it. It's an imperative mood verb to sing praise to the Lord. So we need to think a little bit about what that means. Uh, Just to review a little bit about this psalm. First of all, we realize David faced a situation in his life and in the life of the nation of Israel uh, of divine discipline. God was uh, displeased with not only David but with the nation and puts the nation in a place of priority in 2 Samuel uh, 24 verses uh, at the beginning of that chapter, chapter 24 verses 1 and 2, that David... That, that Israel has, has displeased God and been disobedient. We are not 
told specifically what the sin was, but we learned something of it in this particular psalm because it mentions this sin in uh, when we get down to uh, verses, let me see here. When we get down to, to verses uh, 6 and 7, where David says, now in my prosperity, and prosperity really isn't a good translation in English. That communicates to us in our generation the idea of financial well-being, and that's not what's going on here. He has, he has defeated the enemies of Israel. The borders are secure. He has united the 12 tribes. Uh, there is a measure of peace and stability in the kingdom. There are no enemies either within, uh, because he dealt with enemies within with the uh, with the various uh, rebellions. Uh, he felt dealt with enemies within with Saul at the very beginning, and then later uh, with Absalom, and and so these rebellions have been put down. And uh, this is a time when he can look around and see how God has provided for him and protected him and stabilized the nation, and yet both he and the nation, or maybe I should phrase it this way because the nation gets priority, both the nation and he are uh, in a position where they have, uh, where they're thinking that they did it themselves, that they are, uh, all of this is due to their own efforts and their own benefit, and so they are uh, operating on pride and arrogance. They, uh, they think that they have done it uh, all alone, and so that's what he means, in my prosperity. And so he is actually failing the uh, prosperity test, and he has said, I shall never be moved. In other words, what can, what can take me down? What can defeat us? Who can defeat us? We are... Uh, we have the greatest army. We have defeated all of our enemies. And so it is on the basis of that arrogance that God brings this judgment of a plague upon the nation that's described in Second Samuel chapter 24. As we read to the end of that chapter, down in verses 23 to 25, we saw that the plague ended when David uh, offered a sacrifice on what we now call the Temple Mount, which at that time was just Mount Moriah. Mount Moriah was the same location where God had told Abraham to take his son. Remember in Genesis 22, God says, take your son, your only son, in words that are echoed in the New Testament in talking about uh, Jesus as God's only begotten son. And much that happened there on Mount Moriah was a, a type or a picture of what would uh, what the Lord Jesus Christ would do when he died for our sins. So Abram is told to take his son, his only son, and to sacrifice him to the Lord on the mount on Mount Moriah. And so we know the story. Abraham uh, took Isaac. When they get close, Isaac says, "Well, where where's the uh, sacrifice?" And God says that I mean Abraham says that God will provide. And as they get there, I'm sure that Abraham explains to Isaac what's going on. Isaac at this time was not the boy that is often pictured in um, in children's uh, literature, but he was an adult man. He was probably somewhere around 25 or 30 years of age. And so they, uh, Abraham explained to him what is happening, and this shows a lot about Isaac's character and his trust in the Lord, and he is... he 
willingly lies down on the altar to be offered as a sacrifice to God. And as Abram, Abraham is about to uh, slit his throat, the angel of the Lord stays his hand, stops him, and provides a substitute in the ram that is caught in the bushes. And so this is a picture of how Jesus, who is our sacrifice, is a substitute for us. And so all of this is what happens on Mount Moriah in Genesis chapter 22. And this is the same location where, the, uh, where David is offering this sacrifice. It's the, it's the location of the Temple Mount. Now, according to Jewish legend, the, when you think about the monstrosity that is there right now, the Mosque of Omar that is there on the, on, the, on the Temple Mount. It's called the Dome of the Rock. The reason it's called the Dome of the Rock, none of us have been able to go there because since uh, 2000 they haven't allowed any non-Muslims to go in. But you can go on the Internet and you can see pictures of the interior of the Dome of the Rock. And there is a flat slab and it, the legend of the Jews is that it is on that flat slab that the Ark of the Covenant rested in the Holy of Holies in the Solomonic Temple. And then, of course, it was there was no Ark of the Covenant in the Second Temple. But that this also, they take it back even further, and they say that this was the same spot where Abraham offered offered Isaac. Now, we don't know if that's actually true or not, but it is generally in the same location. But they also believe that this is where the fruit, I mean, where the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was located. So they think think that this goes back. And it's interesting that when we go to Israel, and you remember when we go to the city of David, and one of the first things we do is we go up on top of this building where they have an observation point. We can look down into the uh, uh, Kidron Valley, and they, you, the guide points out, or I point out, where the Gihon Spring is located. And it's covered over now, but that is the location of the, of the water that was taken by the priest to anoint the kings of Israel. It's the Gihon Spring, and there is an underwater river there that, um, that flows. Actually, it flows under the Temple Mount, and it is called the Gihon Spring. And there's, a, there's one place where we find that name in Scripture, and that is one of the rivers, one of the four rivers that flowed out of Eden. You have this very different geography in Genesis 2 in the creation before the flood of Noah and there are four rivers that diverge from a single source now there's no place like that on earth today rivers converge they don't diverge and so you have four rivers that diverge from there and uh, everybody tries to locate them because their names are the Tigris, Euphrates, the Pishon and the Gihon and these are but these are not associated with the post-flood of Noah rivers. Uh, people, when they come to some new land, like when they came, uh, the British English came to North America, they named people named cities here 
after the cities they were familiar with back home in England. They had cities like Norwich and New London and Boston and many of the other names that you find in, in New England or just uh, transposed names from, from back home. So that's what happened after Noah and uh, the family got off the ark and they see rivers, they named them after rivers that were familiar with them, to them from prior to the, uh, to the flood. And so, but it's interesting that the river that flows under the Temple Mount is called the Gihon. It's the Gihon, feeds the Gihon Spring. And so that, who knows? I'm not making any claim that that's accurate, that that's one of the rivers and that that was Eden. But that's the legend of the Jews, so that's that's very, very uh, interesting. But the symbolism and the consistency that you have in Scripture where over and over again God has certain things happen in the same place in order to keep teaching certain critical spiritual principles uh, is, is remarkable. And so this is where uh, David comes, where he is going to uh, purchase this land from Aruna the Jebusite. He will build the, uh, or actually Solomon will build the first temple there. And this will be where the nation comes Uh, as a nation to realize their forgiveness of sins, to sacrifice, and to to praise God. So this is where David built uh, this altar at the end of 2 Samuel, and God stopped the plague, stopped it early. 70,000 were killed. It could have been uh, much, much worse. And though we studied last time that though David was prohibited by God from building the temple... He wasn't prohibited by God for from doing all of the preparation. And this is an important insight, is that, that David, the plans for the temple are revealed to David by God. And these plans are, are, are in tremendous detail. And uh, we've studied in uh, 1 Kings before, uh, about 10 years ago, and went through all of the detail that's given there. And I made the point that even if you were to sit down and try to draw an accurate blueprint from what is revealed, you couldn't do it because it doesn't give us all of the information. It just gives us a lot of detail and to give us a very good general idea of how the temple was built. But God gave David uh, all of the details down to each nail and each uh, each joint and each board and everything, just so David would know just exactly how much lumber he would need, how much gold he would need, how much silver he would need, all of the jewels, all of the cloth, the the making of the cloth, all of these different things were done in preparation before David died. So it stands to reason that when David is preparing everything, that he is taking the psalms that he has written, which are the hymns of the nation Israel, they're hymns of worship, and he took those and he they were collected together. And we know from uh, First Chronicles that he organized the orchestras, he organized the choruses, the choirs, huge choirs, six, seven, eight hundred voices, and huge, um, uh, huge uh, uh, orchestras. And they would play, and the people would come together on the big feast days, and there they would sing. And, of course, we're just now 
uh, with sunset tonight, concluding uh, Yom Kippur. I mean, yes, Yom Kippur, which was yesterday, the Day of Atonement. And so there would have been a day of fasting yesterday, or I guess it concluded with sunset last night. And then they would have what they call break the fast because they fast on the Day of Atonement. But a week before you had uh, Rosh Hashanah, which is the Jewish uh, civil New Year. The ritual New Year begins around in, in, in March. But the civil New Year begins with Rosh Hashanah, which is in the fall. So you have Rosh Hashanah and you have Yom Kippur, and these are the, the, high, the high holy days. And in the Old Testament, Israel is required to, all the men in Israel are required to come to the temple to worship at Passover, at Pentecost, and at Yom Kippur. Those three times they would all come together. You can just imagine how the population of Jerusalem just exploded with all of these people coming from all over the land, coming to Jerusalem, uh, for those festivals, and then you'd have these incredible choirs. You'd have the, these these orchestras that were the made up of the best of the best musicians in the in the tribe uh, of of Levi. They are all Levitical priests, and they would they would play, and the people would sing. And so David wrote the the hymn book. And so when we come to this first verse where, as I pointed out last time, you have the superscription in the New King James. It says, a psalm, period. Remember, there's no punctuation in the original language. A song at the dedication of the house of David. So it makes it look as if this is David's house, which is one of the views uh, that um, that we have. And in the New American Standard, they punctuated, I think, correctly to get across to us the idea. It is a psalm, a song at the dedication of the house. And I pointed out, and I'll have the scriptures again in a minute, uh, that often the temple is referred to in the psalms as the house of the Lord, not using the word hekal, which is the technical word for the temple, but using the word bayat, which is just a normal everyday word for a house. And so it is a dedication of the house. And then the last word actually in the Hebrew is just one word with a one letter prefix at the beginning, which is the preposition, but it indicates the author. And so many of the Davidic Psalms, that's how it's expressed. It's just la David, which means a Psalm of David. So last time I also pointed out, as we look at this, that uh, this is a declarative praise psalm. And we ought to think about this because one of the areas, as I've pointed out, and you've heard me many times, that when we think about what goes on in our evangelical culture today, there has been this misrepresentation of praise where it equates praise with singing certain kinds of choruses. And so now there's a whole genre category of songs that are sung in churches called praise songs, or praise, yet they're not hymns, they're just praise songs. And I like to make a distinction between these kinds of choruses and some of the choruses that I grew up singing back in when I was a kid, 
but they were Bible, a lot of them were Bible verses and they were designed to teach Bible memory and they were also very doctrinal and solid in their content. And so I refer to those as Bible choruses. Some of these were sung by uh, a Child of Evangelism Fellowship and Youth for Christ. I have a, used to have it, I have a book here, a hymnal that is called uh, Making Melody, and it is put out by the, used to be the Bible Memory Association, Scripture. now it's called Scripture Memory Fellowship, and there are a lot of great hymns that we sing in here, like When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, or My Hope is in the Lord. Uh, these are in there, How Great Thou Art, To God Be the Glory. But at the beginning in the first hundred, there are a number of different uh, what I would call uh, Bible choruses that we sang when uh, I grew up singing uh, many times over and over again when I was at camp or we sang them uh, in Sunday school when I grew up in church uh, in Sunday school. And so uh, they would teach the Word. And as we'll see, that's one of the functions of teaching and one of the functions of declarative praise. As I pointed out last time, declarative praise focuses on giving thanks for something that God has done. So it is not just saying, praise the Lord, oh, praise God, he did this, or praise God, he did this, which is very superficial, and is really characteristic of a rather immature Christian. But we have 95% of evangelicals today, that's, that's all they do, because nobody's taught them any different. And it is to talk about what God has done in our lives and to explain what it is. And as I pointed out last time, it's not spending a whole lot of time dwelling on your, your circumstances, but on what God did uh, because God delivered us. And so the focal point in a declarative praise is not on the person and their problem, but on God, who is the great problem solver and has given us the spiritual skills to solve problems. So a a declarative praise psalms will talk about who God is and what he has done. And as I said last time, it can be either an individual praise or a praise of the community. This, of course, is David's praise, so it's individual. And then uh, the other category is descriptive praise. We sing some Hymns, immortal, invisible, God only wise. What's the focal point there? The the character and the attributes of God. That is a descriptive praise hymn. And so we sing a number like that, and it is designed for the purpose of reminding us of the character, the attributes of God, and who he is, and and what he has done. And so this helps us to understand uh, the kind of hymn this is it's it's a descriptive praise and when we look at the at the opening line which says a psalm actually in the hebrew this is called a mizmor now i want to see if i can find I've these praise words that we have hallel is the one that is most often known by people because we have the phrase hallelujah Hallel is simply the Hebrew verb for praise. Hallelu, the you, indicates it's a second-person plural command, meaning y'all praise. And so hallelu is y'all praise. 
Yah is the name of God, the first syllable of Yahweh. So hallelujah is simply telling other people that they are to praise God. So when people walk around saying hallelujah, 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 they, they don't understand what they're doing, and it's, it's not accurate. So we have hallel. We have other words. I'm not going to go through these again. But the third word that I pointed out last time is this verb zamar. And this is made a noun by simply adding an M to the beginning, and it's a mizmor, and this is a type of song. And it is, of course, designed to be sung. And what's interesting is when we get there, when we get down to verse 4, verse 4 is translated, Sing praise to Yahweh, you saints of his. And that word at the beginning to sing praise is this word, zamar. Well, let's back <clears throat> back up a minute. So when we look at this opening line, I want to add a couple of things that I didn't mention last time. When it says that it is a song at the dedication of the house of David, there are a number of different views, and if you look at some different commentaries or different sources or different notes in your study Bible, they'll give you some different things. So I thought I would put these up here. The word that is translated dedication is the word Hanukkah. Does that sound familiar? It's where we get our word Hanukkah, where the Jews celebrate at this special event that occurred with the cleansing of the temple uh, after the desecration. This is the first point. After the desecration by Antiochus Epiphanes in 165 B.C., and the way the story goes is they ran out of, of uh, the sacred oil, and so miraculously oil appeared each day, and the uh, candelabra continued uh, to to um, uh, burn for the for the week long feast of the dedication of that temple. So there are some that think that this is written, uh, not written by David. Remember, probably 80% of, new t- of Old Testament scholars, even in evangelical schools, do not believe David actually wrote the Psalms. So you always have to start there. It's, it's, it's just bizarre. And so they will say that David didn't, wrote this, it didn't write this. It was written in 165 for the dedication of the temple after it had been cleansed after the desecration of Antiochus Epiphanes. Why they take the statement that it's done at the dedication of the house as legitimate and the ascription that it is by David as not legitimate is in the realm of total incongruity and doesn't make sense. It's illogical to take part of it as part of this statement as legitimate and part of it is as not legitimate. But welcome to the world of a lot of Old Testament scholarship. So the second view is that this was not written by David because David. What what they're arguing is David wasn't at the dedication. So David didn't write this for the dedication of the temple, so they find some other dedication. So they would say that it's written at the dedication of the second temple after the Jews returned from Babylon and they rebuild the temple under uh, Zechariah, Haggai, uh, and under Zerubbabel. 
Then they dedicate the second temple in 515 B.C. That's described in Ezra 6, 16 to 17. But it's unnecessary to go there. A third view is that David, the house shouldn't be understood as a house of the Lord. David wrote it for the dedication of his own house. And then a fourth view is that the temple needed to be cleansed after the Absalom rebellion, and that's why David wrote it. Well, at least those people take the Davidic authorship as legitimate. But the reality is that when you plug this into what I said earlier, that David is doing everything to prepare for the uh, construction of the temple and for all of the services of the temple. He's organized all the choirs. He's done all the different things that it makes sense that um, that this was written by David to be sung at the future dedication of of the temple, which is called the house of the Lord in passages like Psalm 23, 6 and Psalm 27 verse 4, and a number of other places. I just didn't feel the need to give you all of those all those places. So last time we looked at what David is doing in the first verse, and the language is interesting because the word for extol is the Hebrew word room, which means to lift up, some, that God is high and exalted. And so there's a word play here because in the second line, God, he is lifting up God because God is the one who lifted him up. And the picture here that is going to run through the next couple of verses, because he will talk about Sheol, and he's going to talk about uh, the fact that God rescued him so he did not go down to the pit, is the image of the fact that he has fallen into this deep hole, and God is the one who is going to rescue him by pulling him out of the hole. And I'll talk a little bit more about that. Uh, when when we get there. So this is the idea. He is uh, close to death. That's the imagery of falling into the pit, which is usually used as a synonym for Sheol, the place where the dead go. And I'll talk about the different uses in a minute, but that's the idea is God rescues him from death. That's the point of this imagery. And so this is a situation in David's life, and it fits because David's life would have been in apparent jeopardy with this plague running for three days in the city of Jerusalem, just as most of us are in some sense in jeopardy because of the COVID plague that's uh, uh, going through the world right now, and people are very fearful of it, and there are a number of people who have died, but it is not nearly as severe as everybody thought it was going to be, and so uh, we've been trying to run in fear from a virus, which I don't think you can do. So anyway, this is Psalm 30, verse 1. I will extol you. So this is what praise is, is to magnify God. That's the idea there, is to talk about how great he is and what he has done and, and describe the wonderful things that he has done. But we describe, they're described in a way where they're generalized so that other, others can sing, uh, sing this as a as a hymn in the worship at the temple and relate to the uh, need to uh, praise God and to lift him up. And we do the same thing as we sing hymns that are in our hymn book. We can relate. We don't know all the details of the problems or the situations or circumstances of uh, hymn writers. Some we do. Excuse me, some we do not. 
But we can identify in a general sense because we are sinners and we face all of the problems that sinners face in their lives and all of, we're living in a fallen world and we face all of those things. So we can uh, trust in God to provide for us and to protect us uh, along the way. So he praises, I praise you, O Lord, for you have lifted me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. And so the idea there is that if he had died in the plague, then his enemies would have rejoiced and had a party. It is, um, uh, it is sad to say that in every civilization and every culture, there are people who rejoice over the death of someone. And last week we had a justice, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who died, and there were some people, some conservatives, who don't have a lot of uh, good sense, and they don't have a lot of grace orientation, and they rejoice. And I was so pleased to see our president respond in the way that he did, just unknown. He's coming off stage, and somebody walked up to him to give him the news, and, and he just, really, I didn't know that. I didn't know that. She was a wonderful lady, you know, just very genuine. And you don't see this this hate and this bile that a number of people have have presented when he uh, has pr- uh, given his, uh, his um, uh, recommendation for the next Supreme Court justice, and those are just, just so vile. So we looked at that, and we looked at these various uh, praise words, and I'm just going to rapidly just advance us through the through this slide. Uh, we've looked at the main one I wanted to, but these are all these different words that talk about the fact that we are to magnify God, to declare who he is, to glorify him, to exalt him. All of this makes up what it means to glorify God. And uh, as I was indicating earlier, the word in the second stanza, you have lifted me up, is the word dala in the Hebrew, which literally means to draw or lift some water out of a well. But in the PL stem, I'm not going to get into what that means. These are different. Every verb has about seven or eight different forms. And PL is one of them, which gives an intensified meaning. And so it has a slightly different meaning than it does in the cal stem. And in the PL, it means to uh, to hoist someone out of something or to rescue someone. So that's the idea here. He, I, he is praising God because God has rescued him from what could have been a certain death. And in verse 2, he goes on to describe this, and he said, O Lord my God, I cried out to you, and you healed me. Now, what's interesting here is the word for heal is the word rafa. Now, some people anglicize that and say rafa and talk about Yahweh rafa. You'll hear that sometimes, and that's alluded to in some of these praise choruses. And it means to literally to heal someone from an illness or an injury. And sometimes it is used in parallelism with the word for salvation, yasha. And as I've been studying the Psalms, I've begun more and more to realize that I don't think there's any place in the Psalms, with maybe one or two exceptions, where the word yasha is used to refer to spiritual salvation, justification. Most of the time it's in a parallel for healing or deliverance from enemies or something of that nature. And here he, David says, you, you healed me. 
And so it is a word that has as its primary meaning healing from an illness or some disease. But in the context here, because we know David did not get the plague, that David did not get healed from that. But what happened is that David is healed from a spiritual sickness. It's a healing from sin. And so this word is used in other places. For example, in Isaiah 53, talking about uh, the Messiah who will come and giving a remarkably uh, detailed prophecy of his crucifixion, said by his stripes, that is by his, the, the uh, flagellation, by his stripes we are healed. And so that is, this word is used to talk about a spiritual healing as well. So it would involve um, uh, David's realization of forgiveness for his sin and his recovery from his sin. So in these verses, he is, um, or in this verse, he is alluding to the fact that he had confessed his sin. It's not a uh, sin of confession like Psalm 51, but in a many deliverance uh, psalms, because the, uh, uh, excuse me, in these descriptive praise psalms, because the writer has been uh, forgiven of sin, he will mention his confession. But it's not about his confession, it's about God's deliverance of him. So he simply says, Oh Lord my God, I, I cried out to you. And the word there for crying out here is a much more descriptive uh, verb for screaming out or yelling out to God, much more, uh, shall we say, emotional. It, it's much more passionate than simply quietly in your head confessing sin. And Jewish people and Middle Easterners are much more uh, overt in their expression of their emotions than Anglo-Saxon, Scots-Irish people are. So we tend to keep it all in with that British stiff upper lip. So, O oh Lord my God, I cried out to you, and you forgave me. You delivered me. You healed me spiritually. And then it's further explained in the third verse. He says, O Lord, you brought my soul up from the grave. Now, the word translated grave here is the Hebrew word Sheol. And Sheol has various meanings. And I'm going to give you four basic meanings that we have for Sheol in the Psalms. The first, it simply refers to death. It is simply where the dead go, okay? It is the death. Where do the dead go in our experience? The dead go to the grave. They're buried. So that's another meaning of Sheol. It's talking about the grave. The third is that it refers to a place in torments, Okay, in the Old Testament, we know from Luke 17 that there's, and that's the story of Abraham, the beggar, and the rich man, and the, I mean, excuse me, Lazarus, the beggar, and the rich man. And Lazarus is outside the rich man's house, and he's begging, and he dies, and he goes to Sheol. And he goes to a compartment of Sheol called Paradise. Paradise is separated from another compartment where the dead go called torment, separated, the text says, by a great gulf fixed. 
And so in the Old Testament, those who died went to paradise, which was in Sheol, in Abraham's bosom, and that is a place of paradise. And then there's on the other side, you have those who were unbelievers, and they went to torments. And it's it's like a holding jail until they finally will get called up for the and death. Remember, death and Hades will give up their dead at the end of Revelation chapter twenty. And so the dead, all that's left at that point in in um, Sheol are the unbelievers in torments. And then they come out and they go before the great white throne judgment, and then they're convicted and sent to the lake of fire. So. David is saying here of these, uh, and, and the fourth op- option, fourth option, uh, a place of extreme danger. So it, it describes the place of the dead, it describes a grave, it describes the place of the dead in torments, but it also d- describes a place of an extreme danger that if God wouldn't intervene, you would die. And that's the way it's used here. David didn't actually go into the grave. He didn't actually descend to Sheol. He is in a place of danger where his health and his life is threatened by this plague. And so God rescues him from this very, uh, very dangerous situation. You brought my soul up from Sheol. You have kept me alive. So see, that line tells you he didn't die. He didn't actually go into the grave. You have kept me alive that I should not go into the pit. So earlier we had a verb that pictures pulling someone out of a well. Here we have the picture of the pit. And, of course, that is used as a synonym for Sheol in a number uh, number of different passages. In um, Psalm 917, we read, The wicked shall be turned into Sheol, and all the nations... And that could be translated all the all the Gentiles, uh, because in the Bible there's no judgment upon classes of people. You get that out of you know, it, it, the Bible deals with individuals, not with groups, not with classes, not with identity politics. And that is one thing that is wrong with all of the uh, classification that comes out of critical race theory and social justice is that it deals with everybody and and puts everybody into a class that comes out of marxism we're not in god's view we're not in classes we're not going to be judged as americans we're not going to be judged as germans or as russians or as chinese but on the basis of our individual faith in christ and how we lived our lives as christians so uh the the grave here uh, is simply referring to a place of danger as we have in um, but uh, Psalm 917, the wicked shall be turned into Sheol, that is the place of torments. And then in Psalm 1610, a very well-known passage that is quoted by Peter in Acts 2, 25 to 28 in his, um, in his day of Pentecost message, he quotes this as as a support for the resurrection of Christ, that this is a messianic verse and a messianic prophecy that says, For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. See, that's talking about the physical body in the grave. 
And so this is uh, clear that this is talking about the grave. It's talking about death and the grave. It's not talking about actually going to the place of Sheol, but just the grave. So all of these, every time you look at the word Sheol, you have to use talk about, is it talking about literally or figuratively, and what are the various uh, different, different uses? In Psalm 30, verse 3, you have brought my soul up from Sheol. And as a result of that, he then is going to challenge the people to sing praise to the Lord. And so he he has this as a command, as a second-person plural command to the people that you all sing praise to Yahweh, you saints of his. Then this, the root here translated saints is the root where we get the term for Hasidic Jews. It talks about you, some translations will actually translate you pious ones. But it's talking about those who are believers. And he says, sing praise to Yahweh, you saints of his, and give thanks at the remembrance of his holy name. Now, what we see in the first part of this is the line, sing praise to the Lord, and that is in parallelism to the next line, and give thanks at the remembrance of his holy name. And you remember last time I talked about the fact that in many of these descriptive praise psalms, one of the key words is the word todah. Now, todah in modern Hebrew means to give thanks, but its original meaning is to, to praise and to talk about in, talk in gratitude about what God has done for us. So the singing of praise is in a descriptive praise a psalm talking about what God has done and how he has delivered us. And so we are to remember the things that God has done and relate that to his essence, his holy name. Now, I want to talk a little bit about this first part here and what this means uh, to us. What does it mean when we read this command to sing praise to the Lord? I want you to think about this a minute. What is involved in singing praise to the Lord? Well, first of all, there has to be some content. There has to be words. Someone has to write the words. The words are not just thrown together. The words are thought about. When you look at most hymns, they are not originally written to be sung. They are written as poetry. The verses stand alone without the music, and they stand as good poetry. Now, as I pointed out many times before, when we are uh, singing hymns and selecting hymns, we should not select that which is mediocre. We need to select the best that we can find and the best that we can handle, that which is measured not just on its theological or doctrinal content, but on how well it is stated as a poem. It is artistic. And so it, it, this relates to the discipline, I'll talk about it in a minute, of, of aesthetics. Uh, what makes something beautiful? What are the standards for saying, well, that is a great poem. That is a great work of art. That is a great painting. That was a beautiful, beautiful song. We're appealing to some standard, and we all know that, well, that's not. 
something that we see, well, that's not good art, that's not good music, that's not good poetry, that's not good writing. So we have this sense of some absolute. However, we live in a world dominated by uh, multi, um, excuse me, by multiculturalism and postmodernism, so everything is equally bad. Notice I didn't say equally good. It's equally bad. It's pathetic. And almost anything gets by because you can't be judgmental. But we have to, so we have to think about that. What is involved in the verse? What are the standards of poetry? What makes the lyrics quality lyrics? The second thing, then, is the lyrics are then set to music. So we then have to ask the question, what makes it good music? Are there standards that make some music good and some music mediocre and some music bad? And maybe some music just reflects a worldview. See, one of the things I pointed out many times is that when you get into discussions with people about music and worship and what we sing in church, they immediately say, well, we don't. We have our own music for our own generation. We're singing a new song to the Lord. Well, that is a total misinterpretation of what new, that phrase means in the Bible. In the Bible, it means there have been new circumstances, new situations. God has intervened and delivered us in new ways, and so we're going to write a new hymn about it. It doesn't mean that every generation had new music, because if you look at it, the music that was sung in the synagogue for a thousand years, going back to the first temple, didn't change much. They didn't have a generation after generation coming up with their new forms of music. It didn't happen. It didn't happen through the... There were some changes that happened through the Middle Ages, but as I pointed out before, when the worldview changes in a culture, the music changes, the art changes, the aesthetics change. And so it's ultimately all grounded in worldview, your view of God, your view of knowledge, your view of values, and your view of beauty. This is where aesthetics uh, will come in. So we talk about uh, singing. We have to talk about principles of singing. And as I've just said, music and singing come under the category of aesthetics. As soon as you say, that's beautiful, you have appealed to some standard. The problem we have in a postmodern culture is the standard that people are are appealing to is just their own. What they're saying is, I think that's beautiful, and it doesn't matter whether you do or not. The standard is is totally dependent upon each individual. It's part of just moral relativism, but in this case, it's aesthetic relativism. And in fact, we can go farther and, farther and say it is aesthetic antinomianism. Now, remember that big word antinomianism means that it is against law or against standards. It's, it's exemplified in the scripture during the period of the judges when it said everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That's antinomianism. I'm just going to go sin and do whatever I want to do whenever I want to, and because it's what I want to do, it's okay. So when that's applied to, uh, when that is applied to knowledge, and you get mysticism, everybody is saying, God told me to do this. That is just epistemological, uh, epistemological antinomianism, and there's no standard for determining when God speaks and when he doesn't speak. 
And when you get to music, if anything goes, then you have aesthetic antinomianism. There are absolutely no standards or no guidelines, and everybody's just doing whatever, uh, whatever makes them smile. In the Oxford English Dictionary, it defines aesthetics as the branch, or excuse me, as a set of principles concerned with the nature and appreciation of beauty, especially in art. Now, you can apply that, we think, immediately of visual art, but it can apply to, to music, it can apply to writing, it can apply to drama, it can apply to dance. All of these are, uh, are, are make up the arts. And it goes on to say, it is the branch of philosophy which deals with the questions of beauty and artistic taste. Now, often in our culture, we hear phrases like, well, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. And we sing this song, and we like it, so it's okay. Again, that's just pure subjectivity. We all have different tastes. We all grow up listening to the kind of music that our parents listen to, and then we discover the kind of music that our friends listen to. And every generation over the past hundred years or so have gone through various very quick transformations of music. But music has certain absolutes that are inherent in it, and the great philosophers and thinkers in the ancient world all worked on developing these these principles. It was was interesting to me that uh, when I began to study about ancient education, that in classical education you had what was called the trivium and the quadrivium. So the curriculum is divided into the three and the four. And the four are all related to arithmetic. You have, you have arithmetic, you have geometry, uh, and you have astronomy, and you have music. Music isn't over there with rhetoric and grammar and language arts, okay? It is, it is located with the math because music is, has to do with the proper ratio between the tones and what makes a pleasant uh, sounds and what doesn't make pleasant sounds, what are the positive chords and what are the negative chords. And so there have been these standards uh, that relate to good music versus bad music. And some people say, oh, well, we don't have highbrow music. Nobody ever said that. It, good and bad, good can be a simple, good, quality melody. It can also have many co- uh, counterpoints and and have a lot of uh, a lot of harmony in which case it's a much more complex tune but whether it's simple or complex it's good or it's not good okay it follows certain standards uh certain standards uh, of beauty and so we come to the bible and the bible talks about these uh, different uh, phrases, different terms in relation to beauty, and I'll come back and talk about that next time. But I want to go to the New Testament and what it says about singing. In Ephesians 5.18, passage that's familiar to all of us, we read the exhortation in verse 18, Do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled And it's literally, it's be filled by means of the Spirit. The result of that is giving in these participles that follow it, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. 
So the, one of the, the first result mentioned here of being filled by the Spirit, remember the Spirit fills us with His Word, and when we're walking with the, by the Spirit, the Spirit fills us with His Word. One of the results is, the first result, is we sing about it. Singing is a result of joy. So we are singing. So these are participles of result with the result that we speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Now, in Colossians 3, we'll look at in just a minute, that uh, is, you, uh, it has teaching, teaching and admonishing one another. So it's not just speaking. It gets more specific in Colossians 3.16. There we have it. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. That's what the Holy Spirit fills you with is God's word. Teaching, the results of these two participles, teaching and admonishing one another, not just speaking to one another. That's a more generic word that Paul used in Ephesians 5, but he uses these two more precise nouns. So when we sing, we're teaching others from the words that we are singing. And they also admonish. There's correction there because we hear the truth and the truth changes. That is, if the lyrics are biblical. And that's why it's important to have theologically accurate uh, lyrics in the hymns that we sing. So we are to teach and admonish one another. And then you have different categories or genre of, of, of music. You have the Psalms, which were singing the Psalms of the Old Testament and hymns, so these, this was a newer development of a certain type of music, and spiritual songs, and we don't know exactly what each of these categories related to either, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. So basically, if you're going to apply that, just do it this way, you, and you put your name there, must let the word of Christ make itself at home abundantly and generously in every aspect of thinking and life. And the result is going to be teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So there's a red X in there. I transferred this over from another presentation, and I'm not, that was, oh, I know what that was doing. It should be over here, Xing out the comma after wisdom. That's bad punctuation. So in, in wisdom is this phrase over on the, I can find my way here, in passe Sophia, in all or in all, every category of wisdom. And it has the idea of association that, that the word of God works at producing an association with all wisdom and uh, it has the idea of with reference to all wisdom or the sphere of all wisdom and so uh, as it dwells in you, it produces wisdom, which is skill for living, and then that results in the singing and making melody in your hearts, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. So singing doesn't appear to be optional, either congregationally or just by yourself. Maybe in the shower, maybe as you're driving down the road, wherever it may be. Maybe you're just sitting outside in your uh, in your yard or in your garden. Uh, but we are to sing. That is an overflow of our relationship with God, the Holy Spirit, and it's designed for teaching and for admonishment. These are the two verbs: uh, didasco to get, instruct 
and to inform the mind rather than the emotions. Music isn't about the emotions. It's the words are to uh, form the thinking of the soul. And nutheteo, which refers to uh, correction or admonishment or positively encouragement, uh, is a, it overlaps with teaching. It's a way of uh, instruction as well. And it's done through the words and the music. The music is really the frame to the words. In in a good hymn, you don't you're not you you, you don't see the see the music, or hear the music, and it overrides the words. It's to enhance the words so that it helps us to focus on the meaning of the particular words. So what we see is the importance of the content of the language. David Wells, who is a, the distinguished research professor at Gordon-Conwell Seminary, he's retired now, and he has written several books that are outstanding, very deep, dealing with where our culture is going. And in his comments on music, he says he, that um, he refers to a study that was done that analyzed several contemporary chorus books as well as traditional hymn books. So he's looking at several hundred choruses and several hundred hymns, and his, the conclusions were almost 65% of all choruses had no doctrinal development or content. Now, this study was over 15 years ago. I think the number is much higher now. Uh, it's almost impossible, he says, to find a hymn with no doctrine or development of content. You know, almost every hymn has has some develop. It may not be good good content. It may not be good theology, but it has a development of theology, development of content. So that shows the difference. The modern choruses are focused on the emotion and bib- hymns that are sound in biblical focus on our our thinking. So I'm going to uh, stop there, and next time we're going to come back and we're going to look a little bit more about this concept of beauty and aesthetics as it should apply to the hymns that we sing and the music that we sing. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things and to have our thinking challenged to reflect upon what is involved in singing praise to you, giving thanks to you, thinking in a more uh, complex, deep manner about how we are to elevate and extol you in our lives. Father, we're thankful for the fact that you gave your son to die for us and that we are rescued, delivered, saved, justified by his death on the cross so that we can be confident and rest in our eternal salvation. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.